Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I am not Adrian or Matt. I am your new host, B, and this is a special episode of uh, Quarantine Book Club Podcasts. <laughs> Maybe I'll cut that something else in there. <laughs> um, <laughs> Today I'm joined by uh, Laura Lamb, who is the author of a number of books. Most relevant right now is Goldilocks, a, a sort of generation ship, a sort of heist novel about five women who steal a spaceship and go to uh, create a new world. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get into like the reading and the questions, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit better maybe than I just did? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So yeah, I'm uh, Laura, though I go by the nickname L quite a lot, and I'm originally Californian from basically the same place where B is, uh, but I've been in Scotland since 2009, and I'm currently in Edinburgh in lockdown for about a month at this point. And I'm like, what is a human? I don't know anymore. Uh, so yeah, Goldilocks is out in two weeks, and possibly the worst time ever to launch a book. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, about five women who go to an exosolar planet, which is humanity's last hope, because Earth only has 30 years left of habitability. So yeah, it was a lot of space stuff and feminism and a lot about algae. Yes. And (laughs) great food and... um, You know, the rise of fascism and climate change. Yeah, you know. (laughs) It ended up getting... Even more relevant, yep. disturbingly. <laughs> it is It is a very, very relevant book right now, I feel like. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to help or hinder it. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we are trying to start these episodes out with a, a short reading. So would you like to just read a, a short passage from the book? Yeah, my first reading is just right at the beginning. Um, and I have a prologue that's set 30 years later by an uh, undeclared first person narrator. And you find out who that is at the end of the book. Uh, and then my second reading will be from Naomi's point of view, who's the main character. And you'll meet her later. This is only the second time I've read aloud from this book, so it's very exciting. The last time was in person. It was my last in-person event, but I didn't realize that this is going to be the only time I read this book in a room full of people. (laughs) All right. (laughs) In 30 years, Dr. Naomi Lovelace has never given an interview. Whenever I asked her to tell me what happened up there, Naomi would say no one who has been to space could ever describe it to someone who hasn't. They could use all the pretty language they liked. You might be able to come close, she told me once. She was always complimentary about my writing, but you'd never really know what it was like. Others will judge the choices she made, what she risked, how close she came to utter destruction. Let them, she always said. I'm used to their hatred by now. Over the years, I've often imagined Naomi up there, floating alone, curled up like a white comma against a black sheet of paper, her bulky spacesuit, the tethering cable and umbilical cord back to the ship, the silence but for her own breathing and the crackle of the comms twisting out to gaze at the stars, the reflection shimmering across the gold line visor of her helmet. I don't know what she thought about the expanse before her, if it changed her understanding of humanity and our place within it, if that led to the decision she made. I've watched the recording of the court testimony. Even there, she'd said as little as possible. The whole world had been desperate to hear her statement, to put her on trial as much as the others. Naomi had stood surrounded by the polished wood of the courtroom, all warm browns compared to her time surrounded by the white metal of the Atalanta. It must have seemed so loud, so messy, after so long breathing recycled air, drinking recycled water, seeing nothing organic except for the plants she had grown in her greenhouse. Naomi had lifted her chin, her posture ramrod straight in her pressed, stiff suit, her short hair only beginning to grow out again. The scratches on her cheek were still fresh. 
Thirty years later, they were the barest seams, hidden among the faint wrinkles. Her face was drawn, not only from what she saw among the stars, but what she'd faced when she'd returned. Dr. Naomi Lovelace has been many things over the years. Scientist, criminal, villain, hero, famous, infamous. I feel like I should clap, but I, that seems like it'd be kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> One solitary clap, yay. <laughs> so I have a few questions, but I, I kind of want to just jump off of that into one of them, if that's cool. Okay, yeah, go for it. So one of the things I, I like really loved about this book is the way that you are, um, you're sort of navigating like between more hard science fiction elements a lot of scientists doing scientist things and like yeah you know in clipped like conversations like both, both stylistically and in terms of content but you are also never far away from dropping like a really neat image and that in that bit it's the naomi up there floating alone curled up like a white comma against a black sheet of paper and i'm just curious like is that just like how you write is like do you do you anchor around images or like what's what's your um what's your process like i guess i think i do tend to really like images and a pretty turn of phrase uh like i think i flirt a fair amount with you know literary writing whatever that can mean mm -hmm. we have a whole discussion on it because my day job um i lecture in creative writing and i see it as there's kind of a spectrum between like commercial writing and literary writing and the more commercial you go sort of the more plot focused it is usually and usually it's quite pared down language so that you're turning the pages really fast and then literary you're really focused on the language and that means the pacing can be quite slow and so for me it was a challenge because me and my editors we still really wanted to have this you know beautiful imagery and this sense of scope and space of the universe but it also is a fairly fast-paced plot although mm -hmm. some people think it's very slow paced for a thriller which perhaps it is um so yeah that was a difficult balance and trying to i wanted to also try and describe the hard science beautifully as well mm -hmm. um so i had i had fun with it because yeah i felt like i really got to kind of lean into how i really like to write my friend said I write very delicately, which I liked. <laughs> that is sweet. Um, and it's yeah. not inaccurate, I feel like, based on this book. Yeah, I think there was there was another moment um, that I don't have pulled up right now, but I think there's a description of uh, a wildfire raging and you describe like the firefighters looking up at the fire like ants. Oh, yeah. Ants on a burning log. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've read this book many times. Yeah. It's basically memorized. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Which I guess is uh, maybe a pivot to some broader theme stuff. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Like we said at the top, there is a there is a certain amount of relevance to this book. I know. I almost feel like I have to give like a content warning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there have been some reviews that have been like, "This may be disturbing to, because of events of March 2020," and I was yes. just like, "Oh god." <laughs> so well, yeah, there are there are some yeah relatively on the nose bits <laughs> by accident now yeah so i mean i feel like there's like a, a split right there's the stuff that was obviously going to be a relevant. problem before yeah like yeah. climate change yeah we've known that's a problem for a while yeah and then there is um without getting spoilers <laughs> yeah there's a there's maybe something like a pandemic happening at one point in the book maybe uh, slightly yes <laughs> um how did like i guess you were probably finished writing the book like a while before yeah i finished in october and then on january 22nd i saw a headline about coronavirus and i immediately emailed my editor ella and was like holy shit and she was like oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, and at that point we thought it was going to stay you know relatively contained like the like sars and mers yes. um but yeah th that didn't happen did it how did that feel was it like 
It was very weird. It's probably not as weird as it is for Chuck Wendig because Wanderers, which I just finished, again, probably shows the worst time ever to read it, but it's even creepier. Like it has it being uh, his pandemic in Wanderers is started by bats. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> okay. And, yeah. Um, so his stuff was really like even more on the nose than mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I guess, yeah. Um, but yeah, I do want to say though that it doesn't take up a massive amount of the book and it's also not super detailed either, which I think right. is probably a good thing in retrospect. I don't think it'll be as upsetting to read perhaps as something that was more graphic. Yeah, totally. Um, cause yeah, reading through it, you know, over the last few days was like, it, it for me at least was a very weird mixture of like, like, yes, of course. And also like. I don't how do you how do you even how do you even talk about what's happening in the world right now? Uh, I know. I think we're all still kind of just like in a state of we're in this weird like liminal phase because we know that everything has changed, but we don't fully understand to the extent that it's changed. And I right. think it's only now like 2 days ago I had just a day where I felt like I was moving through mud and I think it's because I'd started like intellectually I'd known everything was going to change, but I think I was starting to actually realize that we're never going to go back to the normal before yeah but that's probably a good thing yeah (laughs) to be in some respects because the normal before is what got us into this problem totally it's a thing that i've been dealing with as a as an employee of an independent bookstore it's a uh it's a real change in world real fast (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) like i know one day it's like oh i'll probably just go back to my job in like a month or so and then the next day it's like there's no fucking way (laughs) there's there's no way that's gonna happen we'll see we'll see yeah Oh, actually, that brings up another note that I had, mm-hmm. which related to the relevance, I guess. There's a moment where Naomi is talking about or is thinking about Cole, her uh, ex-husband. Oh, yeah. And... That bastard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and she describes like how inescapable he was and how like she had seen, you know, his face everywhere because he was the first man on Mars and like is famous. And one of the one of the little bits is just like. That she noticed his uh, his face on memoirs at bookstores all over, and <laughs> there was a part of me that was just like, "This is like the payphones in Neuromancer." Uh, <laughs> like... I know, God. I know. Well, there's this whole like scene where they discuss stuff about like infectious diseases that's out of date now. <laughs> there's there's yeah, lots of things that has meant it's now in like an alternate history slash future. Yeah, um, it's already forked off sooner than i thought it would perhaps yes it's (laughs) but yeah this i don't know i feel like we can okay maybe move off the relevant stuff right now (laughs) yeah yeah Um, because yeah we're probably not gonna have a warp drive anytime soon for example (laughs) i had to take some liberties with some of the tech Mm -hmm. so let's go to my favorite topic of food Uh (laughs) yay so yeah naomi who's the pov character has uh her sort of main job is uh, growing the food and providing the food, which is, I believe, Nutriblocks. <laughs> yes, Nutriblocks. Which are just packed algae with uh, some some not so great flavorings on them. Yeah, some binding. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and she experiments at one point with trying to give them like herby flavors, like rosemary, and then she says that just basically tastes like soap. Yep. <laughs> and then they tried to make, like, cinnamon and vanilla flavored, which still didn't cover up the fact that algae ta- tastes like a stale pond. Yeah. <laughs> 
but it is probably what we're going to be eating when we go to space because it doesn't require soil. It only really requires light. It's pretty easy to replicate um, and it's really nutrient dense. Is it, it? I mean, I assume it's true because you wrote it and this book seems like the kind of book where you're not just uh, pulling facts out of your ass. Um, <laughs> I did not know no, algae contained like full, um, full essential proteins. Um, yeah, they do. So um, basically all the algae stuff was read over by my friend, Dr. Sinead Collins, who I met in the most millennial fashion of all time when I spilled avocado toast over myself at a cafe. <laughs> <laughs> she gave me her napkins. <laughs> Seriously, the most millennial story ever. <laughs> but we got to talking and she uh, works at the University of Edinburgh, where she runs a lab that looks at algae in the context of climate change. Mm hmm. And it took me an embarrassingly long time writing this book before I was like, hold on, my friend Sinead is basically Naomi, except not an astronaut. <laughs> and then I basically slapped myself on the forehead and was like, Sinead, can, if I highlight certain relevant sciencey bits, can you read over them for me? Because I'd asked another person who looked at algae, also at the University of Edinburgh, but in a different department, and had looked at growing food on Mars and had given a talk up at the Royal Observatory. So I'd already asked him some stuff and had given me an initial jumping off point. He was the one who first told me about cyanophages, which are viruses that attack algae. Um, so I had a draft and then I sent it to her. And she said I did a pretty good job for someone who knew nothing about science. So I felt pretty pr proud of myself. <laughs> but yeah, she went through and finessed everything and double checked stuff for me. And she was the one who came up with the fix of spontaneous resistance, which mm -hmm. is all I'll say about that. But yeah. Yeah, so um, I was really grateful to her. And we're actually, at some point, the dates are still to be finessed, but I'm going to interview her on, like, uh, Instagram Live or something mm -hmm. so I can ask her more about her science. Because, yeah, she's really cool and just knows so much about such interesting things. Yeah. Yeah, the acknowledgement pages in the back of the book are very, like, very <laughs> full five. of... yeah. It's five pages, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which, like, is a thing I always appreciate, like, even if I have no idea who these people are and will never, you know meet or maybe ever see, hear, hear about them again it's like nice to know that there's like a community involved in the creation of these books i think like no book is an island like it's mm -hmm. my name on the cover but for all of my books there have been like dozens of people who have gotten me through between doing something like a hard science read or just like patting me on the head and be like they're there <laughs> keep writing it'll be okay yeah and i actually i need that quite a lot <laughs> yeah i mean i think we all do <laughs> so yeah yeah, there's, I mean, I also, I just wanted to shout out the uh, the sweet potato chips, the salt and uh, rosemary sweet potato chips, because, oh, yep, yep. yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, I have that most of their food is the horrible Nutriblocks of doom that at one point I describe as Turkish delight, but even more foul. Even though I personally do actually like Turkish delight, but. Wow. <laughs> although, I know, I do feel like I was lied at in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, mm -hmm. where it seemed like a lot more exciting than what it is, but I will, I will still polish off a rose-flavored <laughs> Turkish delight. Okay. Um, but yeah, she's also part of her other job is also growing some real food, both in earth soil and Cavendish soil, which has slightly different mineral components, mm -hmm. and so she's doing that so that they can at least have something that's tasty now and again, like sweet potato chips or sweet potato with nut butters and. Um, they have a store of some food that will eventually run out. The description of not just like an interesting, you know, neat little meal of sweet potatoes and like flavored with rosemary was great, but that it was planted in Cavendish soil was like such a nice little Pretty touch cool. that like, yeah. yeah, didn't didn't necessarily move the plot forward in any major way, but 
It was the kind of thing that I like really appreciated about. I really book. like food and novels. Like, did you ever read Bri- Brian Jock's Redwall books? Yes. Yeah. Like the epic, epic <laughs> feast scenes that yeah. just went on for 15 pages and made you really hungry. Yeah, those are great. Um, I also had fun with the vat grown meat on the mm-hmm. ship as well. Because I think vat grown meat will be the future. Mm-hmm. It's And it's also... Uh, plot relevant in ways that i won't get into <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was sneaky i tried to make everything work on several levels at once <laughs> yeah. and and i think you did a good job but oh, thank i you. guess that's for um our listeners to buy it and find out <laughs> yeah, yeah every book it's reader <laughs> <laughs> so alongside the um the like really good use of interspersed images i feel like the sort of the structure of the book is very interesting because at least at the beginning it's pretty evenly split between present day like as the mission is happening and then sort of flashbacks that that give sort of character details um and that was a thing that i started really appreciating as as the more thriller or like hard sci-fi aspects ramped up was that there was an actual like character base happening (laughs) so that like it wasn't just you know cold equations happening it was actual people (laughs) Um, hopefully yeah that was the goal (laughs) Yeah, um, I realized literally all of my books are non-linear. Like, I was lecturing, and I was like, most of my books are non-linear, and then I had to stop and be like, nope, it's all of them. <laughs> I've never written a linear book, and I've written eight. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's going to change anytime soon. But I really like it, because you have the opportunity to, like, juxtapose different information, and you can, specifically in Goldilocks, you can really contrast their very... Um, isolated environment and sterile environment on the spaceship with, you know, the messiness of Earth and the fact that it's, you know, falling apart, but it's still very alive and yeah. you can be present in it in a way that you can't on the Atalanta or in real life right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I like being able to kind of tease out things about relationships or set up things, or it can be a really good way to balance pacing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then near the end, as the plot ramps up, I tend to tend to let the flashbacks drop away a bit. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the other point of them is to establish characters, and they're pretty well established by the time. Yeah, and then you focus more on plot as yeah you ramp up to the end. It's also I just I guess I wanted to highlight that because not because it's you know a structure that no one else has done before or anything, but that I think uh, at least in Goldilocks it, it's pretty well done. <laughs> Thank you. It like feels. Especially, I think Valerie as a character feels very fleshed out in ways that, like, she goes places that I wasn't necessarily expecting, but make a ton of sense. Yeah, it wasn't terribly surprising. I love her. I think of her as um, Elon Musk meets Sigourney Weaver. (laughs) That is... She she was so much fun to write, because she's just like, she knows what she wants, Mm -hmm. and she is unapologetic, um, and she will, you know... She will gut you if you're in her way. Um, But if she loves you, she really, really loves you. I guess that's um, one of the other themes that's maybe less immediately popping off (laughs) in the real world is uh, there's a lot of stuff about family in this book. And um, Mm -hmm. it's it's not all comfortable. (laughs) Nope. No, because I think sometimes families are uncomfortable and you're not always going to get along with everyone in your family all the time. Like I'm lucky in that I'm super close with my family, but yeah, we've had our screaming fights in our time as well um but i think too in goldilocks like the women on the ship they know that they're the only people they're gonna see Mm -hmm. they think for you know years and years possibly 
not decades, but a good long time before their people come to Cavendish. And so they are a found family. And then, you know, what happens when they're tested so much that the the group starts to split? I feel like that is a um, a contrast that I see sometimes is like, oh, like birth family isn't always great, but found family, that's where you like, that's yeah. where you can flourish. And it's like, well, actually, they both have problems. <laughs> they can do. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're and then made um, up of individuals who have exactly. different desires. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And with Naomi and Valerie, they're interesting, too, because they came with a lot of pre-existing baggage, because um, it's not a spoiler to say, because you find out super soon, but Na- uh, Naomi's mother died when she was really young, and uh, Catherine, the mother, was the co-founder of this company, Hawthorne, which is basically SpaceX. And so Valerie was the one who took her in when she was, I think it was five, and so basically raised her. So she's basically a mother figure, as well as her boss, as well as the person who's making her dream of going into space come true. Yep. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on between them. Yep. And then, I guess, there's, there's also Evan, which... Is, it, is a very interesting... Um... <laughs> yeah, so Evan is their main point of contact back on Earth. And uh, they, uh, Naomi and Evan do not really... They have a complicated relationship as yeah. well. And it, <laughs> it continues to get more complicated. <laughs> this is kind of a... Um, maybe a fluff question. <laughs> but mm-hmm. So there is a, a portion of this book where the trolley problem comes up. Oh, yeah. And it's... It's very interesting. I feel like the trolley problem has been at, at the top of people's minds in the last like couple of years, and I don't understand why. Oh, have you not seen The Good Place? I did, but I thought I thought that was like, did that start it? Was that was it? Yeah, is it all the Good Place? I think so. Fault? That's where I learned about it anyway. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think it was because that got uh, that episode in particular got nominated for Hugo and stuff. I think too. Oh, did it? Okay, it did. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a very good episode. <laughs> Yeah, I love that episode. I love The Good Place in general. I finished it in, in like, floods of tears. It was just so perfect. Um, But, yeah, I really liked the trolley problem. Um, And I think it's there's basically a version of it that you are asked, I think, in medical school, because you have to choose, you know, in this scenario, who would you choose to save sort of thing, which is horrible. But, you know, it's a decision that doctors will actually have to make and sadly are having to make quite a lot just now. And I don't know what decision I would make in the trolley problem, which I think is why it's so fascinating to me. Because I'd want to say I'd do the right thing and like, you know, but I don't know what is the right thing. There is (laughs) no right thing. (laughs) Yeah. God, I can't believe I didn't realize it was the good place's fault. (laughs) (laughs) I think it has to be. Yeah. I... I still haven't finished that show yet, and uh, it it does end on like the perfect note. And there are a lot of TV shows that like start strong and kind of fritter out. But I think this one, like they stopped at a good place. I don't think they could have like stretched it any further than they did. So yeah, but yeah, I enjoyed it. it made me feel a lot of things, yeah. <laughs> a lot of feelings. <laughs> I guess maybe that's a, a useful question. Is like like influences like on this book is there anything that you like you drew from directly or just like sort of was in the atmosphere that you felt like yeah well the kind of marketing pitch that we use a lot is the martian meets the handmaid's tale which i think does a pretty good job of giving you an idea of what you'll get it may not be in the way you expect but i think it gives you at least a shorthand chuck wendig said it was um interstellar's brain with handmaid's tales heart which i was like 
he was like, is that too corny? And I was like, no, I love it. <laughs> so I was like, I'm using it. He was like, fine. <laughs> now it's, it's on quotes everywhere now. Nice. Um, but yeah, so I think those two were definitely influences. Yeah, so those were definitely backgrounds. And basically all space movies were influences. But I also get really frustrated with a lot of space movies. Because they're incredibly dude-heavy, which is fine, except that they're all dude-heavy with the exception of Gravity. And I love Gravity, but she's by herself for the entire film. She's not really talking to anyone else. I don't know if it passes the Bechdel test. It probably doesn't. And I also, a lot of the time, like, the women characters are, like, the love interests or the background characters. It's happened to Liv Tyler twice, where she's the (laughs) astronaut's wife left back on Earth. And I'm like, send Liv Tyler to space. Hollywood, you can cast Naomi as Liv Tyler. And, like, I would be so happy. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I tried to take, distill everything I really love about astronaut movies into a book. Mm-hmm. And other influences, probably a lot of near future dystopias, like a Parable of the Sower by mm. Octavia Butler, which I yeah. think deserves way more accolades in its own TV edition as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, I read a lot of astronaut memoirs, and that fed into things a lot as well. My favorite one was Chris Hadfield's An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. He's the one who sang Space Odyssey on the ISS, okay. and he's just like a lovely, kind Canadian dad. Okay. It's just so cool. <laughs> I would love to meet him one day. Yeah. Um, so those are the ones that jump out. But yeah, probably in an osmosis of most things I read somehow will come out in weird and unexpected ways. There'll be a lot of influences I won't really fully understand until a lot longer mm-hmm. after I've finished. Totally. Yeah, there was a there was a bit of me that was like, this is Armageddon meets Ocean's 8 in a weird way. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's kind of like the aftermath of the heist rather than like the setup to the heist. Totally. It's yeah. like they they get away with the heist on page one. Like no one can come after them. They're in space. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, they've stolen a spaceship, which I love the audacity of that. I wasn't going to have it at first, but then I was like, if this is a misogynist future, why would they allow a bunch of women to go into space? So totally. Like, they steal the spaceship. Yes. And that was fun. Yeah. We haven't even gotten into the, the fact that there is like a whole structure of, uh, you could call it maybe anti-feminist, maybe fascist, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, like yeah. governance uh, in the background of this book that's like, I think, very well drawn. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I've had some kind of pushback because people wanted more detail on how we got from now to the sexist future of Goldilocks. But for me personally, I deliberately left that gap of time quite vague because I wanted the reader themselves to be able to draw their own conclusions. And I also didn't want it to date too fast. But I don't think you have to make a huge stretch on anything. Like while I was writing it, I had, um, because in this future, abortion is banned for your first child. um, And they use that as an excuse to get women out of the workplace for at least five years. And then it's very hard for them to get back into it. So they haven't exactly banned women, but they've, you know, found some ways to keep them out of the workplace in a sneakier way, which is how I think it would go. And I was going to have abortion be banned in year like 2028. And then all the heartbeat bills happened Mm -hmm. last year. And I was like, well, I guess it's 2020 now. (laughs) Um, So I I had to move a lot of stuff forward. But yeah, basically in this world, it's like, what if the men's rights activists got into power and the president was like a super red pillar? Mm -hmm. So that'll be fun if they, you know, find this book. I'm probably going to get some hate mail, but we'll see. (laughs) But yeah, and it was kind of like libertarianism mixed with sexism, I suppose, is what I was interested in. Yeah looking at 
even though I'm not inherently anti-libertarianism, but I, I've noticed there's a lot of sexism among that sort of crowd as well. It's as a, you know, as a 17 year old and living in a white suburb, I was very uh, attracted to libertarianism. And mm -hmm. then I realized I actually just wanted weed to be legal and not all the other <laughs> weird, gross stuff. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. And you got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Progress. Yay. Uh. Not here, sadly, but maybe mm. one day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're going to go into the final reading, but before that, we're curious about how to best support you and what you're doing in this particularly weird time. Obviously, by Goldilocks. Um, yeah, yeah. But, and you um, mentioned you do you're doing Instagram live stuff. Is that like? Yeah, so I'm actually doing a fair amount of virtual events, which you know it's kind of a bit of a silver lining because I had all these great in-person things planned. Like I was going to be part of the Edinburgh Science Festival. I was going to have a launch at London Piccadilly, which is like the biggest bookstore in Europe going to do a little mini tour around scotland my mom was going to fly out like oh. there's this whole like alternate timeline where yeah. things happen <laughs> and none of that is happening now mm -hmm. but there is a silver lining in, in that it means my events are a lot more accessible and not as tied to location or the ability to get up and go so like disabled people will be able to access my events a lot easier than before perhaps which is great they're still kind of finalizing a lot of things but if you follow me on various social medias like twitter or instagram at lr underscore lamb i'll you know put up all of that but yeah buying my book is the number one thing that will help because you know if i have good out of the gate sales then that can help me maintain momentum when the bookstores open and hopefully you know help convince them to stock it and maybe push it but yeah and then if you read it if you could leave a review somewhere or just tell a friend that would be great because word of mouth is still the most powerful marketing you can do and yeah, in terms of other ways of support, I have a Patreon where I talk about craft stuff, which is uh, patreon.com slash loralam. And yeah, so just generally yelling about it would be great. Because <laughs> there's only so much I can yell about it until I just feel like I'm yelling into a void or I'm going to annoy people or it just feels awkward. Um, so it's much easier if other people yell for me. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Would you like to do some yelling for Naomi and friends now? <laughs> yeah, so the second reading is just after they've taken off and stole, stolen the spaceship, basically, and they're just about to, you know, leave and start making their way towards Mars, but they decide to take a moment and just kind of take in the view before they go. So, in the bridge they paused, hovering above the seats and the consoles. Well, goddamn, Valerie breathed. Below them lay Earth. It didn't look like a marble. It was too clearly alive. The clouds crawled slowly, the planet bisected by the line of day and night. On the night side, the lights of cities glimmered. There was Europe, a gleam of brightness over Paris, Berlin, Kiev, strung together by smaller cities like linked synapses. Southern Europe was largely dark in summer, as people who could fled north to places like Finland or Estonia. Lightning flashed over Morocco. Far to the north was the green glow of the aurora borealis, charged particles from solar wind burning up in the atmosphere. It was Naomi's first time seeing the Northern Lights. She'd seen the Southern Lights and thought them beautiful on the expedition to Antarctica during her undergraduate degree, smothered in a parka as she gazed out at the horizon. From here, it looked like magic. The day side illuminated what the night could not. There was no ice in the Arctic Sea. The Antarctic wasn't visible from here. This time of year was constant darkness for the Southern Pole. But in summer, it'd show large expanses of black land dotted by large turquoise lakes, some the size of small European countries, as the glaciers melted. 
She wondered if the lights from the oil rigs recently put up in the Ross Sea would be visible from space. The Antarctic treaties had been broken long before they were meant to run out in 2048. The land on the other continents was too brown and golden, the green too sparse. There were swaths of land where humans could no longer survive, and the habitable areas were growing crowded. There was even some gold green in the oceans, from dust storms blowing off the continents and fertilizing phytoplankton blooms. They'd managed to fish out most of the Great Pacific garbage patch, at least, though even if they hadn't, it might not have been visible from orbit. Earth was such a little, vulnerable thing in the grand scope of the universe. Down on the surface, those mountains were larger than life, but from the ship they were only a ripple. The world should known was nothing but a suspended, lonely rock. It'd keep itself alive in the end, but that didn't mean large animal life would do the same. Humans were finally confronted with their fragility. Within a generation, they could all be gone. They'd outgrown this world, drained it dry. They needed a new one. The women held their helmets, gathering around the window. The exhilaration and adrenaline of launch was fading, everyone sobering as what they had just done set in. They knew what they risked, yet it, that was different from being confronted, so baldly, with what they stood to lose. With what they were so desperate to save, they'd steal a ship. Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much for being on, on Spectology. Um, no worries. On the first of these, this little book tour thing we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah. And as as always, I guess, uh, thanks to WJ for our music. You can find him on SoundCloud. And thanks to Noah Bradley at noahbradley.com for our artwork. You can find Spectology at SpectologyPod on Twitter or email us at SpectologyPod at gmail.com. And I am on Twitter and Patreon at B-E-N-L-A-D-E-N. If you want to, you know, see the tweets about Kesha and how much I love her. (laughs) Again, again, thank you. That was a really lovely, yeah, conversation. No worries. Thanks so much.